Uh, my name's Ian Marlow, and uh, I, uh, in addition to doing things in the church, run a uh, business in the city of London. So uh, we've got a great passage today. But let me start with this, because this was a week, and I, I think this is deeply shocking, when the Sun newspaper went all educational on its front page. The entire front page was a definition of a word. And it's possibly the longest word in a banner headline that the sun has ever produced. And it was a German word. It's Schadenfreude, apologies for the, trans, for the pronunciation, which is pleasure derived from another person's misfortune. Can't imagine what they're talking about, but uh, you know what they say about football, it's a game of two halves and then you lose to the Germans on penalties. But not this time. <laughs> I've actually been in Deutsche Bank where Vicky works twice this week, trying very hard to look unsmug because we need the business. But there we go. Let's look at something slightly more edifying. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 22. A long passage, but a fantastic passage. This is right at the center of Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse one. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect." No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I started examining Christian faith when I was around 13 or 14 years old. Uh, I was part of a sort of reasonably observant church-going family. Although, to be fair, at that time it was my mother who went to church every couple of weeks. My father hadn't been to church since the war. He landed on D-Day, fought through Normandy, and saw things that would make anyone start to question as to whether there was a loving God behind the universe. It took him probably 30 years to come back to faith. It was not a church like this. It was a big Victorian barn of a place, that's true, but it was about 50% bigger and there were usually 25 people in it. It's where I learned to project my voice because there was no PA in those days. It was middle of the road. I'm not sure they knew what road it was, but they were in the middle of it because we were Anglicans. And the sermons were kind of a diet of Anglican fudge. It was hard to get a grip of. And I was one of those annoyingly inquisitive people who wanted to know why and what was that about and did that make sense. And it particularly irritated me that the prevailing kind of way of understanding Christian faith was, well, God is just, but he's kind, and at the end of time, he'll sort of weigh up the good bits and the bad bits, and we'll see where you settle. Well, how deeply unsatisfying was that, I thought? Because you could try and be good, and by implication in my mind, miserable, and not quite make it. Well, you could just have had a good time, and you wouldn't make it, so at least you've had this life to enjoy. It just didn't make sense that that was what Christianity was about. And I got invited to a small youth group, and by small I mean six or eight people, where we started looking at Jesus. And I found the character of Jesus utterly fascinating. Quite at variance with what I experienced in church. That didn't seem to have much to do with what the Jesus I read about in the Gospels was saying. And deeply challenging, because I thought, if that's what a man is meant to be, I'm just not at the races. That's just in a different league. And it led me through a long journey, and most of us tend to have long journeys, to an experience of God's forgiveness, to know real peace. And what Paul was talking about here is the message that I responded to, that he responded to, and if you're a Christian, that you will have responded to. The word gospel actually does mean good news. And in popular understanding, I guess church isn't always thought of as good news. I met a guy when I worked with students and said, what made you think about Christianity? He said, well, I came out of dinner one day and a friend of mine came out of a room singing. And I said to him, what are you singing about? And he said, I've just been to a prayer meeting and walked by down the corridor. And he said, it just confused me. You've just been to a prayer meeting singing, and it started, that's what started him off on a journey towards faith. It just seemed so incongruous. And this, Paul says, is the gospel 
he preached to the Corinthians. Some of the translations flip it and say, this is the gospel you heard. And he reminds us of that gospel. And it's like right at the beginning, he's saying, just stop for a moment. If you're a Christian, do you remember that first experience? Remember the first time you read the Gospels and thought, wow, this wasn't what I was expecting. Or went to a church service and thought, well, a bit weird, but oh, that was something or whatever. Do you remember those first moments when you respond, responded to Christ or were searching after him? It was a gospel we all heard and then needed to receive. The language here is a language of gift. When Paul talks about grace later on, that's gift too. And a gift is something that is given freely to us. But then, if you're not wanting to be staggeringly rude, you unwrap and enjoy. Because if you give someone a gift and they just put it on a shelf, do you have these family presents that get recycled? And you have this embarrassing moment when you realise you gave it to them last year. Oh, they gave it to you last year, you're just giving it back to them? It's just not how gifts are meant to be. So this is gift language. You heard this, you then gladly received it, and now he says, you've taken your stand on it. You're committed to living it out, following the truth of Jesus wherever it might lead. And then this is something that actually causes concern to some people, I know that. He says, this, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Now, here's the problem. If you're the kind of person that struggles with guilt and insecurity and a sense of failure, you hear this the wrong way. At least that's my experience of talking to people. We're saved, he says, by the gospel. Now, I mean, that is a cliché. I watched the cup final many years ago where there was a great banner behind one of the goals that said, Jesus saves, but he won't save Liverpool. And it's quite true, God's resources were not up to it on that occasion. I'm not sure God was to blame personally, rather the players, but there you go. It's a cliche, but it's also a fantastic truth. This message of Jesus dying on the cross for us saves us from final judgment because Jesus has paid the price into forgiveness so that we can know what we've done wrong is forgiven. It saves us from guilt and a sense of failure to freedom. It doesn't just save us from, it saves us to. And we're told that this we need to hold firmly to, to believe, to trust in, to commit to. So what does it mean when he says, otherwise you've believed in vain? Let me suggest to you that if you read the Bible, there are two messages about this. One, and I think the loudest one, is if you've responded to Christ, you can be sure and confident. Jesus says no one will pluck you out of the Father's hand. So don't worry. And you know if you're the kind of person who doesn't need to click the worry button for it to work, it's on all the time, you have to turn it off. Can I just stress to you that you're safe. God is faithful and will keep you. 
But there is another message, let's be realistic, and it's a message for those who are just being flippant about the whole thing. Great, grace is free, I can do whatever I like. Because if God loves forgiveness so much, let's give him every opportunity he can to forgive. So the more I sin, the more he forgives, the more happy God is. As, was it Voltaire, one of the French philosophers said, God has to forgive, it's his job. Once you get to that point, the message of the Bible is, whoa, you're going to a dangerous place, my friend. Because you're not understanding that this salvation is meant to bring you into relationship with God. So my plea this morning is, hear the right message. If you're struggling and you're uncertain, you need to know your salvation is sure. If you're thinking you can reinvent the whole thing around your own pleasure, just be careful. And in verse 3, he says that the things he received, he's passed on as of first importance. It's a message he received and then passed on. Do you remember who was responsible for introducing you to Christian faith? Do you remember them? We all stand on the shoulders of others. Someone gave it to us, we pass it on to other people. It's true of this church, isn't it? We're looking ahead to planting a church because people generations ago planted this church. So we're just moving the thing on down the line. That happens to nations where we're, we were won for Christ by missionaries from somewhere else. And now we're trying to carry on. I remember the guy who was responsible for me coming to Christ, a guy called Bob Hutchins, who was uncharismatic in every sense of the word. He was a good reformed Christian and didn't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, the strongest arguments I ever had with him over about that. He worked as a clerk in a magistrate's court up to the end of his life. He did teaching for a bit, but uh, it, was, it was just a riot <laughs> for the kids, that is. He hated it. And you would look at his life and say, was that successful? He went to a little Anglican church in South London where there were, as I've said, 25 people there. He ran this little youth group with six or eight people. At least two of us from that group went into full-time Christian ministry. The other guy ran the Salvation Army Evangelist Training College. Do you think he had something that he'd received and then he passed on? And he really was not a big character, not a strongly gifted person, but I tell you what, we felt loved. And we looked at the Bible with him and it became real. So here's the first question from this passage, I think. What are you passing on? What am I passing on? Who am I discipling that looking down the road, I'll say, I gave it to you, you give it to someone else. I was thrilled when earlier this year, was it last year? Last year. We went back to Exeter where we'd been involved in church leadership and the delight was speaking to Jenny who became a Christian through a church we'd been involved in planting out. She'd come to an evangelistic meeting right out from, uh, from the cold. We never knew her. She became a Christian within a week and she got involved in what we were doing. And I discovered there that she's now planting a church in Cornwall. And I said, what motivated you to do that? And she said, well, I've 
I got involved in it, and once you started doing it, you can't really stop, can you, even if you don't want to? I thought, yes! <laughs> that's what I want to see happen. So that's the first question. The second thing I want to say, not so much a question as a statement, is, is for you to notice how Paul talks about these things that are of first importance, suggesting that some things in Christian faith are not as important as others. Let me give you an illustration. We were in uh, Uganda several years ago, uh, in Jinja, in a wonderful coffee shop. You've been there, it's the source. Um, and um, I, I met one of the leaders, and they, they, def they have a church in the courtyard, they have a coffee shop, they provide work for people, they train people, it's great work. And I said, so tell me a bit about your church. And he said, well, we're not charismatic. I said, well, yeah, how long has it been going? Well, we're not charismatic. And I thought, this is getting to work. So how can we pray for you? I thought, it's either prayer or violence at this point. It was just so... I, thought, I refused to go to this confrontational mode because you're my brother in Christ. That's the most... The most important thing is not whether we're charismatic or not. It's whether Christ died for our sins. That's of first important. I think that's really important because you can look at so many churches with so many differences... And the only real issue, I mean, there are lots of, I mean, if you want to try me afterwards, I'll argue with you about a thousand things that are secondary, that are important to me. But if you believe Jesus died for, the, for, died for your sins and rose from the dead, you're my brother and sister, not my enemy. I think it's really, really important we get that. And it's really important that we understand that making anything else the first thing is deeply dangerous. And we do that, don't we? We make speaking in tongues or not speaking in tongues or a style of worship or the amount of water you get baptised with and when, all of which I have an opinion on and I'm right. Well, up to a point. <laughs> you know how it goes. But actually, they are all secondary issues. So let's get that perspective right. And then he explains what the gospel is. Really simply, it's three things. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The whole of human history, according to Paul, leads up to that point where Jesus hung on a cross, the only human being without sin, and died for the sin that you and I have committed to. That is the central truth. Then he says, secondly, that Jesus was buried. It's fascinating. Why does he say that? It's fascinating, isn't it? Why does he not just say Jesus died and was resurrected? Why does he say he was buried? It's kind of very earthy. I went to my first Jewish funeral a couple of years ago with a client who named me as power of attorney. Bizarre. Me and Anglican church warden, as that was then, conspiring with the rabbi for this, with the rabbi for this guy to have a Jewish funeral because his children didn't want him to do it. It was just a slightly surreal occasion. But the great thing is at the end, <laughs> when they've done all the singing, and it is rather wonderful, um, the rabbi just says, let me give you a hand with the coffin. You'd love this, Anne. So he grabs hold of the rope, <laughs> leaves it down, and gets a shovel. Just very practical and earthy. And I think the point here is that Jesus did die for us, but he really died. There was a real body in a real grave 
it's not a spiritual thing. Well, it is spiritual, but it's real as well. And then we're told Jesus was raised from the dead. And the rest of the passage, which we'll go through a bit more quickly, you'll be glad to hear, is all about why that's important. And once you read from verses 5 onwards, the first question that I found is, why does Paul bang on about this quite so much? In four verses, he's dealt with the key issues of the gospel, and then he takes the whole of the rest of the passage, pretty much talking about the resurrection, most of them about the resurrection experiences. Actually, when you look at it, I think the reason's fairly obvious. He's wanting to stress that the resurrection appearances were real things that happened to real people that you could go and meet at that time, ask them what it was like. It wasn't just individuals, it was whole groups at one time. And Paul is saying, if you don't think this is true, or if you question it, go and meet the people. You can still do that, or you could in those days. Part of my journey was responding to the Christian faith and then promptly asking whether I was deluding myself. I don't know if you're that kind of person, you know. That was a great experience of God's love and forgiveness and must have made it up. That's kind of how I think. <laughs> uh, and so I went through a whole period of reading books and questioning my faith that I just that minute come into, pretty much. I knew I'd had a, a real experience, but did I have a real experience just because I needed an experience of the Father? Do you know what I mean? People think that Christians don't have these kind of questions. Of course we do. And I went on a search to find out not just whether this worked, but whether it was true. I'd like to do things back to front, but there you go. And, and the, the thing that nailed it for me, forgive the unintended pun, was a, a book called Who Moved the Stone by a guy called Frank Morrison. Morrison and his friends were atheists and they set out to disprove Christianity because they thought it was the biggest hoax ever perpetuated on the human race. And Morrison, his job was to disprove the resurrection because he understood, as we've read here, that if this isn't true, we've been had, guys. It's a delusion. So he set out to prove it. He was a barrister, and he went through the evidence. And if you read the book, it's, it's dated now, but it's fascinating. The first chapter is called The Book That Refused to Be Written, because in the course of his examination, to his considerable horror, he ended up becoming a Christian. And every chapter is about, well, maybe the disciples stole the body, maybe the authorities stole the body, maybe it was all a mass, mass delusion. He goes one by one through all these arguments and then destroys them. And he was a man who had the integrity to say, I have tried to disprove this, and I've discovered that all of the evidence points to the truth, that there is no remotely better conclusion looking at the evidence than that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead and he had the integrity as a result to become a Christian. Great, great story. It really happened and it's really demonstrable. And then he talks about his own experience in verses 9 to 11. He says he's the least of all the apostles because he persecuted the church 
As you know, in our communities, we're, we're, we're all encouraged to pray for people of peace. Paul wasn't one. <laughs> Have you got that? Paul wasn't one. Paul was the guy you prayed against. Because if he turned up at the church, he was likely just to arrest the lot of us. So no one was going, I'd like you to pray for my friend Paul. He's really interested in Christian faith. <laughs> and God arrested him. And it's great praying for people of peace. I, I'm, I'm, I'd love us to have some people in church who became Christians. I mean, you rock in and go, what are you doing here? <laughs> have you ever seen that? It's exciting when that happens. And he knows God is gracious because if anyone needed grace, it was him. It really doesn't get worse than persecuting the church. And he talks about how God's grace changed him. And then he talks, and this is fascinating to me, he then he talks about how he worked harder than everyone else. It, it, it's interesting juxtaposition. Grace, freely given, mercy, it's all God's work. I work harder than any of you. Actually, if you're a gardener, you know what that's like. You put a seed in the ground and it grows and it's kind of magic. Stuff grows. Unfortunately, that includes weeds, but, you know, go back to Genesis and you'll find out why that happened. So you cannot make a plant grow. It's, it's a little miracle every time it happens. But if you're a gardener, you'll also know it's flipping hard work. You notice that. You have to water, you have to get rid of the weeds, you have to do all kinds of things you don't want to have to do in order for this thing to grow up and bear fruit. And grace is like that. It's freely given. And then because of the grace we know, we just want to pour out our lives, and that's hard work. And then finally, verses 12 to 19, he comes back to the resurrection. And you get the impression, no one seems to be sure, but you get the impression that for the Corinthians, some of them were just a bit too spiritual to believe in a bodily resurrection. And of course, people like that are around now. A former Bishop of Durham referred to the resurrection as a conjuring trick with bones, which is a great soundbite. I haven't got the faintest clue what he meant by it, except that he didn't, really didn't believe that Jesus was alive. Not quite sure how you can do that and be a bishop, but hey, there you go. Here's the thing. Without the historical fact of the resurrection, this is his argument, then there really isn't a transforming message of the gospel, nor any future hope of eternity with Christ. We have been had. The good news is, there's massive amounts of evidence to base our faith on. And without the resurrection, how would we know the cross really did what Jesus said it did? How do we know that Jesus died for our sins? Because he came back. Because it's like God said, what my son did, I'm putting my stamp on it. He's coming back. He's alive. No resurrection, no forgiveness. But there has been a resurrection, so there is forgiveness. So let me wrap up with some questions before we go into communion. Can I ask if you've responded to this wonderful message 
of God sending his son to die on a cross so that you could get to know him free of guilt, knowing where you will be for eternity. If you haven't responded, well, maybe you need to examine the evidence a bit more for yourself. That's fine. Jesus seemed cool with that. When Thomas doubted the resurrection, Jesus said, well, have a look at the evidence. Just feel me. See the wounds. You can check it out. Christianity is like that. If you're investigating, you can check it out. But if you've been investigating for a long time, there comes a point where you decide whether you're going to commit or stay out. It's really hard to stay on the uncertain bit for very long. Once you really know that fundamentally this is true, it's yes or no. Let me encourage you to say a yes this morning as we take communion. Second question I want to ask you is, what is your legacy? Or let me put it another way, who is your legacy? Who are you engaged with now who you're praying that they'll become a Christian or they are a Christian and you're starting to disciple them? How are you going to take what's given to you? How am I going to take what's given to me and pass it on to other people and multiply it out? And thirdly, can I ask whether your faith is based on evidence or experience? Actually, I think the right answer is both. We know God is real because he makes himself real to us in Christ. But we know it's true because the evidence points that way. And there does come a point in everyone's life, as far as I'm aware, where the feelings go, life is tough, things happen like they did to my father, that you just cannot get your head around. Personal tragedies, difficulties, even troubles in church, where it's not a joy to be a church member or to be a Christian. And in those points, you need to know it's true because it's true, not because you feel, God about, feel good about it. And it's that knowing that you've examined it, that you've demonstrated its veracity through the hard times that will carry us on forward. So there are the questions. Have you responded to the message? What's your legacy going to be? And is your faith based on evidence as well as experience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this fantastic message that you sent your son to die on a cross for us. That you restored the relationship which we've broken with you. That you've made access to your presence free and easy and open. And Lord, we pray for those who still are on the outside looking in, that this morning might be a, a step on the journey, maybe a key step on the journey. Lord, we pray that you would use us to pass the message to others, both in terms of sharing our faith and of walking through discipleship with people. Help us to be people like Paul who received and then gave away generously. 
And help us too, Lord, to be men and women who are firmly grounded in our faith so that when the storms come and the questions bewilder us, we know who our God is. We know that we're saved. We know that your gospel is reality. Lord, help us, because without your grace, we could never come in and we could never go forward strongly. Help us, Lord, as we take communion now to know your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen.